Hello, tennis fans. You're listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're back with our second episode of 2024 already and getting prepared for the Australian Open. And we've got a big guest with us today to help us get ready for that. Uh, very excited to welcome back to the podcast a former top 10 singles and doubles player on the WTA. She's captured every Grand Slam title in mixed doubles, won the Fed Cup for Team Slovakia, and has made quite a name for herself since retiring with her expert tennis analysis as well. Daniela Hantukova, great to have you back on Matchpoint Canada. Thanks for having me, guys, and Happy New Year. can't believe the season is has already started. Mm-hmm. Happy New Year. Thank it, you. Uh, it it comes up so quickly because the off-season mm-hmm. in tennis, of course, is, is such a short one for those covering the sport, certainly for those playing in the sport. And as a former player, I'm wondering, just to get started, what was your feeling like at the start of every tennis season? What kind of nervousness did you have, excitement? Uh, what were you feeling this time of year before the first events? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, I would say it was a combination of excitement and just um, looking forward to use all the maybe new tools that we've been working on in the preseason. Uh, being, first of all, super happy uh, being able to be down under where the weather is amazing and you know we, we we don't have to deal with minus 10s as we do right now here i'm sure you guys the same yes. even even more so so you know it's just happy times everyone's smiling tons of energy but at the same time especially the first match it's always so weird because i always feel like it doesn't matter how many years you've been on the tour the first match you're like oh there are line line lines people uh ball kids uh, there's there it's like Everything you have to like digest again and go through the process, like the first match on the tour, it almost felt to me like the first few games, no matter how many practice matches I would play before. And I hated that feeling and I wanted to get rid of it. But after, you know, like year number 15, I gave up and I just realized it was always going to be the case. But it was just maybe the 15, 20 minutes of the very first match. So those nerves were were kicking a big time. But after that was... Yeah, I would say it's one of the best times of the season because everyone's fresh, everyone's got tons of energy. So really, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of amazing tennis to look forward to, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's it's always interesting to see who kind of, you know, comes out of the blocks particularly fast and who's sort of in form right away. I wonder for you, um, did you get a, some feelings of nostalgia when you watch the action, you know, down under now, obviously the site of your special semifinals run? And when you've posted maybe a big result uh, at a location or at a tournament, when you're going back there, are you carrying a bit of that with you, which gives you that sort of extra confidence? Yeah, not only that memory of those uh, amazing matches and wins, but also that feel of that very particular court. So I had that on a road labor, like no matter how bad I was playing in the tournaments leading up to uh, the Australian Open, I felt like as soon as I stepped on road labor, I, I, I found my game again. And most of the time I was lucky enough to play some some good tennis. So I would say it's not only the venue, but you know the exact course where you've played some incredible uh, matches. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always like a confidence boost when you get to a venue to a tournament where you've done uh, well in the past. It's just automatically you, you are going to play maybe at least I would say 20% better because you just... You just feel different, you know, walking around the grounds, and that's why I can't even imagine how Rafa must be feeling in Paris when he get, when he enters that Rolling Garros or or Novak in in, in Australia. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just gonna say, of course, uh, I can only imagine the feeling Novak Djokovic has when he steps on Rod Laver Arena, just a place where you've won so many matches, and you feel like you know a little wrist injury, sort of in a loss to Alex Dimonauer, it almost doesn't matter at all. It's like all the powers are gonna be back when he takes that court. Uh, we know he's obviously the favorite on the men's side, as as we're currently in qualifying, having this conversation. I have to ask, in, in your eyes, who's the favorite? On the women's side, as uh, we're starting Australia, obviously, Arena Sabalenka, the defending champion. And then you have Iga, Elena, Coco, all in the mix. From what I've seen the last couple of days and weeks uh, down under, I I would pick Rybakina. I mean, the way she played in that final against Sabalenka is one of the best matches I've seen. Uh, she definitely has imp- improved so much with her footwork, especially on the backhand return and being pushed out wide to the backhand side. That's where I feel like sometimes 
being as tall as she is and I mean she's got even longer legs than mine so I don't know how she does move really well for her height with Sabalenka it's a little bit easier because she's got that extra power but I was very impressed with her explosiveness and the recovery shot on the backhand side and a couple of returns she hit when Sabalenka was especially in the head side going for those big serves out wide um, if she plays the way she played in that final in Brisbane um, I don't think even Iga can do anything about it. Obviously, Sabalenka couldn't in that match, so I, I would pick her as the favorite um, to win Australian Open. Just for our listeners, we're recording this interview just prior to the draw being revealed for the Aussie Open, so we don't know yet where the players are going to fall. Uh, however, Ben and I, later in this episode, which we're recording at a later date, will have that information for you to dissect the draw. A lot of returning players, especially on the women's side who are coming back, Grand Slam champions like Naomi Osaka, Angelique Kerber, uh, as well as some younger players like Emma Raducanu and Amanda Anisimova. During your career, there were times where you had to take off for injuries or maybe for a little bit of a reset. What was the feeling for you when you had to come back from a layoff and get back to competition? Perhaps right now it's the best time for these players because they're starting the season fresh with everyone else. But if you could just kind of recall what some of those feelings were like for you when you were coming back after being away from competition for a while. Yeah, 100% spot on what you said there. There, the, uh, When you're coming back at the beginning of the season, you kind of are on more or less the same level with the rest of the players because they've been away for a couple of weeks. It's so much harder to do it during a season and to kind of jump on that running train because you always feel like in the way, um, you know, the tennis always involves and it depends so much how long you've been away. Um, because to kind of catch up with the speed and the momentum of the tour, it, it is so difficult, and especially also depends what kind of injury, because sometimes you might be already 100% healthy, but for some reason you just can't trust that part of your body just yet, and you have to go through playing matches and, and trusting that, okay, it is actually, let's say, when I had a stress fracture on my foot, it was absolutely fine, but I still was so afraid to push off that leg for, for a couple of weeks, so it is is very individual depending on the injury and how long um, the players have been away. But having said that, coming back at the beginning of the season, it's it's always a great bonus and so many comeback stories. I personally, um, I'm really looking forward how uh, Caroline and Elena will do because they're closer to my age group there. Uh, obviously, Angelique as well. But I've been very impressed with Svitolina, uh, how she she played in 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 Auckland and so many uh, incredible. Comeback stories, obviously, Naomi knows what it takes down under. Um, yeah, great to see Emma back um, with everything she's been through. So uh, there's there are going to be so many amazing headlines throughout throughout the tournament. Absolutely agree. And one of the things these players are going to have to endure, unfortunately, is rebuilding their ranking. Tennis is kind of unforgiving in that sense that when you're away from an injury, you got to come back and you don't have a seated uh, number next to your name in the tournaments right away. Uh, you were seated at many tournaments throughout your your career, but also went through times where you had to rebuild the ranking. How frustrating is that for players? How much is that on your mind when you come back? Or do you just try and block that out and keep it simple and just stick to your game? Uh, you know what? Actually, I didn't mind it at all because I know in being in the situation as a seeded player, you are most fragile at the beginning of the tournament. So I actually did not mind if I had to play a seeded player the first two matches because that's where the most pressure is on them. They they get better with every match. In the second week, obviously, the champions start to you know find uh, another gears. So I actually and I always kind of that was a, a thing I had. I didn't like to be the one in the spotlight, but I always prefer to be the underdog. Um, so I I didn't mind not being seated because I knew the seated players were afraid of me, and if I had a chance to beat them. It was it was always better in the in the first week. So I, you know, in in the names we we just mentioned Emma. You know, she's not afraid of anyone. Anisimova, yeah, the same. Angelique, obviously. So I I don't think these players really worry about who they play, unless okay, maybe Rybakina Sabalenka first first match that wouldn't be ideal, but you know they they are experienced and I don't think they they really worry about who they play. And I think they they do enjoy not having that pressure on themselves. 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, imagine if you're a seated player drawing an Osaka or an Isimova in the first round. I mean, you must be a little bit terrified. Uh, you know, we had a great uh, team event to, to kick off the year as well with the United Cup. We discussed it on our last episode, 18 countries, men and women merged together. You obviously had uh, success representing your country of, of Slovakia. And, and in your playing days, it, it felt like Slovakian tennis was was very strong. There was, uh, of course, Dominika Supokova. On the men's side, we had her body, Martin Klijan. Um, what do you think the state of Slovakian tennis is today? And do you have any involvement on that side of the game at all? I don't accept admiring everyone in the National Tennis Center where I like to go and do my workouts almost every day to kind of nice. admire their preseason and to to enjoy the part of them all living on the 25th of December while I'm having a wonderful Christmas with my family <laughs> and just uh, wishing them good luck. So that was my input to um, our Slovakian tennis. But having said that, we do have a good setup for, um, for the players here. Uh, actually, Rybakina lives five minutes from 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 here as well there were uh, so she was practicing here and preparing uh too there was Siniakova as well uh we had a lot of international players here uh, which is always great for for the local ones uh for some reason i feel like it could be better we've got some young ones coming up um particularly renata yamrichova if you can remember this name i think she's gonna be uh, spotted very soon uh, in the big tournaments, uh, big tall lefty girl. So I, I would say the next generation is 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 going to do well on the women's side. On the men's side, I'm I don't really I don't I don't watch it. I don't follow it that much, and also I, I'm not here that often. But on the girls' side, I think we we're gonna be good in the next couple of years. Okay, well, well, we're certainly going to be watching uh, for that. In terms of the Australian Open, you know, we love to pick a dark horse or a wild card or a couple names to maybe keep our eyes on. Are there any players, either men or women, you'd have your eye on to to maybe be a danger to make the second week or, or cause a big upset in particular? Well, I think he, he will not like me to 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 call him an underdog, but Alex Demonor, the way he's been playing mm -hmm. and beating both Novak and Carlos to me uh, with the crowd down there. I think he's a he's got a great chance. He's got incredible mentality, working ethic. He moves fantastic and you know once you you get the crowd involved will it be enough against Novak I don't think so but I think he he can have a deep run uh well Sasha's very is not an underdog um I would love to see uh, probably not Australia maybe yes but I would love to see Anik Sinner winning a slam this year talking overall because the way he played in in Torino I mean the the if the guys can keep with the momentum of what they, they've created in Torino and kind of translate it to transfer it to Australia, that would be amazing because I've never, I mean, we all that we were there on site, we were saying like, this is, this is a tennis from another world. So let's see if they, they can start where they left off. Um, and on the woman's side, yeah, I, I like to put my chances on Svitolina because, um, you know, she's got the experience. Obviously, she's got a new life uh, off the court. I was very impressed the way she moves. She does everything smart. She doesn't overplay. Um, I would I would pick her probably. Great choice, and and easy to sort of forget when when a player is away for a period of time. You you forget how great they can be, and and she's come back and very quickly played well last summer. And this is a legitimate top five, top ten player who was in that position for quite some time. So. I think Ben and I are on board with that pick as well. I want to go back to something Ben was asking you about in terms of Slovakian tennis, and in particular, the success you had representing your country in team events. You won the Hopman Cup back in uh, 2005. You won the Fed Cup, now the Billie Jean King Cup in 2002. Uh, obviously, representing your country was something you were very uh, proud to do and something you were very you know happy to do when called upon. Where do those successes and those moments rank for you when you look back upon your your tennis career oh it means everything to me if you ask me the highlight of my career it's winning fed cup for my country because you know we are such a small one and and especially now okay we've got the national center there was no such thing back in the time there was no support from the federation it was just my parents and myself trying to figure out and navigate 
through 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 the tennis world and I also always felt like um because my first coach was my grandmother that when I was playing for Slovakia I was playing for her even more so than um at any other event and um yeah just understanding that sport is one of the very few vehicles we've got in Slovakia to kind of make our country known and having that chance uh, it was something I really wanted to grab I remember when we played Fed Cup final, um, the way the schedule was done, and we had a lot of talks this year about, I mean, last year about Cancun and the Fed Cup final afterwards. Well, I was in a situation where the the WTA finals were in LA the week right after the uh, Fed Cup final was semifinal final group in Gran Canaria. So Sunday night, no, Monday morning, I had to fly from Gran Canaria to LA and play my, uh, Tuesday there so my coach at the time Nigel Sears he said look you have to make a choice here um you're not gonna be able to perform at both you have to choose what, what's more important to you and in one second I said Fed Cup so no hesitation um, yeah yeah um yeah I I you know after all these years even now living here you know for some reason I was born here I'm so proud of the people here and um, yeah, being able to win those cups um, for, for, Slovakia, for Slovakia was definitely the highlight of my career. I wonder if there's maybe some comparisons between Canada and Slovakia in that sense. I mean, physically, we're a big country, but we don't have a huge population and we're certainly not known or haven't been until recent years as a tennis nation. I think that's definitely changing with the Billie Jean King Cup victory and the Davis Cup victory before yes. that. But certainly back when and I, I think was... Go ahead. Sorry. And I think there is one more uh, even bigger similarity that we kind of want to make the tennis, the highlight sport against the hockey, which we always um, <laughs> kind of true. fight. Right. Mm. So um, yep. there is. And I think we help each other to motivate because I remember the year we won. Actually, the year we won Fed Cup, the guys won the World, World Cup in ice hockey. So um, I think there's always that. And wow. you guys have it very similar to, to us. Yeah, I think hockey will obviously always be a, a dominant sport here in our country, but more kids are picking up tennis rackets. My kids like picking up the rackets and playing as well as the hockey stick, which is nice to see. Uh, what have you made of uh, the rise that uh, Canadian tennis has made since your playing days? I mean, certainly there were some talented Canadian tennis players then, but not at the same level and consistency as, as we're seeing now. Yeah, it's, it's a good word to use, the consistency. And it's also so much about the team spirit. In Fed Cup, you don't have to have the best players in the world, as you guys proved. But it's you know it's it's during that week how everyone can stick together, the the captain and and the trainers and coaches they they play a big role of just creating the momentum. And we definitely were not the favorites, as you said, very similar similar to uh, Canada that no one really expected us to win. But you know day by day, match by match, tie by tie, we kind of felt like hold on a second, we actually got a chance to do something really special uh, here for our country. And I think that's where, you know, that pride that, um, okay, you know, we are a small country in population, but we can make something very special that kind of makes you play your best tennis, really. I, I have to ask you, and you kind of touched on this in a sense with having to decide on difficult travel plans when you're playing and, and such difficult schedules on both the WTA and ATP. And a lot has been made of potential changes to the structure of tennis, the idea of maybe merging the tours, shortening schedules, discussions of some sales with Saudi Arabia. And now they're implementing these new rules to avoid late starts. So matches uh, can't be going on past 11 p.m., um, you know, trying to provide some more recovery time for players. Do you have any strong thoughts maybe from your playing day on what could be done to improve the growth of our sport and, and just make it a little bit easier on, on the players because it, it's such a long season, as you know. Well, it is a long season, but first of all, let's not forget the prize money are crazy. Yeah, And the season is just as long as when we played. And we it's just a different communication of the generation now. And when we played where, you know, there were problems, there were things we were not happy, but you know, you, you kind of keep it in the office. You don't go out there publicly, you know, saying, oh, I don't like this about the tournament. I like that. I, I'm not saying, you know, there are things we, we can improve, but you go and discuss that in WTA office or ATP, because I think sometimes 
the players do not realize when they tweet something or they put something on their social media. That's like, you know, pulling up the biggest press conference after the biggest match you ever won, making everyone aware of something you are not happy with. Um, and that's just like, let's say in ice hockey, um, you know, a player is not happy with the ice. He's not going to complain about it because he's playing for, for the club. And if he would, he would be sitting on the bench for, for the rest of the season, probably. So I think um, protecting the tour, there should be some rules applied that you just can't make those negative comments against your own tour. If you want to, go ahead. But then we deduct your prize money or something because the tournaments, especially these days when it's not easy to run any kind of even now being on the media side, I see it even more so. They are doing all they can. And then, you know, you've got players coming and Complain, but complain to the to the people running the tournament. Don't complain to the world what you're not happy with. That 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 just I just it's like you know back in the day in April. Okay, sometimes it was snowing snowing in Berlin or Warsaw. What we started to record the snow. Like I cannot believe I'm playing in these conditions for that amount of money. Like sometimes perspective people with everything we've got going on in the world. I would appreciate just at least think twice before you're going to post that. So that freedom of just saying everything as they feel, I I do not agree with it. Now, yes, there are some problems that we need to face. I 100% believe we should you know, try to have the joint tours as much as we can. I think for women's tennis, it, we can only benefit from that and just kind of you know follow ATP on whatever they want to do, kind of find ways how we can do it um together um late starts we all have them again yes um it's good that we are talking about it and so many times the schedule is very rough what i would suggest that okay if someone is playing late late sessions keep them on the late session schedule because i think as a for a player it's the most frustrating is if you play second night match and then the day later you play first on because that's mm -hmm. like you know almost 12 hour jet lag difference so like that's when I where I feel we can do a much better job, um, at least from my experience of playing. Um, and there are always things to improve, but I would appreciate it if we keep it within and not go so much public with every little problem there is. That's just um, given the amount of prize money and how much they're earning. Yeah. But again, it's a different generation. That's true. Um, I, I go ahead. Ben. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I was I was gonna say, and uh, you, you know, just to follow up with this different generation. Uh, I mean, having something completely brand new, and I watched the first couple of episodes of season two of of, of Breakpoint. Uh, you know, that inside perspective that I have to say, I, I mean, we felt like we knew about players like yourself, and obviously the Williams sisters, and and Hingis and Capriati, and, and stars back then. But this is definitely a completely different glimpse inside the game is it a show you're tuned into and i have to ask if if this were happening when you were on tour and the uh producers came up and asked you can we follow you for a season would you say yes to something like that okay so to answer first question i did not watch anything because i'm so proud of myself i managed to be one week away completely from phone computer anything wow. so so really, I was doing my homework to, you know, talk about Ribakina and everything like just a couple of days ago um, to catch up. The only thing I did watch was Rafa, his first match. I, I, I just wanted to see that out of uh, respect. And it was amazing. I have to say in France, the day after, right away, he was in L'Equipe on the first page. Welcome back, Rafa, which was so cool to see. So mm -hmm. uh, except that I did not um, tune into Breakpoint. I will. Um in my days, a very good question. Knowing what I do know now from the media side, I would say yes now, but me 10 years ago, knowing how shy I was, how I was I was not using any social media, even though it started already, I, I just wanted always my tennis to be about my tennis. Um, I, yeah, there's no way I would have done it. But knowing what I know now, I would tell myself, like, Danny, come on, this is good. <laughs> you need to do it different perspective right and yeah. uh at the time there's so much you're focusing on when you come competing i understand there's some players that just want to block it out um what's your focus for 2024 as as we wrap up our interview with you danny are you uh, covering many events this year are you planning a full schedule from that side of things 
is the Real DNA podcast. You're going to be doing some of that this year as well. We see a lot of tennis players, former tennis players, picking up the pickleball racket. I don't know if that's something you've tried yet or not, but what's on the horizon for you this year? Um, thank you for asking. So definitely as soon as I get back from Australia, back to the slopes. I, I mean, I was born in the mountains and um, yeah, I'm just already looking looking up the weather forecast if it goes as far as three weeks from, from now. Um, so hopefully spending a lot of time there. Uh, not pickle, but paddle here. I am really getting into it. It's it's probably bigger than uh, than pickleball uh, here in Europe. Absolutely loving that. A lot of golf, I hope. Um, and on the serious side of things, uh, yes, the podcast uh, DNA will be back. Really looking forward to that. Uh, it will be also more specific, specific on, say, um, I want to always def- pick up different subjects. So let's say recovery for professional uh, athletes or for someone that just does daily fitness work for or in between their, their jobs or nutrition when you travel, how to work out at home, um, on the road and so on. So, so be a little bit more specific. Uh, interesting uh, list of uh, of guests already lined up, and I will try to travel a little bit less because um, it's been uh, five years of a nonstop travel, which I'm super grateful. But um, a little bit, hopefully, slowing down. Right on. Although you did mention to us off air before we hit record, you might be coming to Canada for some skiing opportunities this winter. Yes, yes. I mean, for for a hobby travel, I I can go anywhere just for mm-hmm. work since. Uh, since I'm 12 years old, I never really stopped um, that I will consider a little bit more um, and and pick and choose. That's fair. Well, thank you for picking and choosing us to be a guest <laughs> on our second episode. No, it's so great no, to see you again. And our listeners are very excited that you're going to be back with us. So uh, thank you and all the best this year. And we can't wait to connect with you again down the road. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. There you have it, our conversation with former 2008 Australian Open semifinalist, four-time Grand Slam champion and mixed doubles, Daniela Hantukova. I have to say, I like her Elena Rybakina pick a lot. I was also very struck by her answer in terms of you know current pitfalls of the WTA and ATP and the issues. That I think that from her generation, they didn't like to air these out. They didn't like to air these grievances publicly at all, sort of keep it in the room. And she's very much of that philosophy, right? I guess she doesn't celebrate uh, Festivus for uh, Seinfeld listeners out there because there is the airing, <laughs> the airing of the of grievances. grievances which, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, it did catch me a little bit by surprise, to be honest with you, because um, I mean, I would admit that that I feel differently. I feel kind of contrary that it's important for players to speak up if there's, you know, whether it be injustices in the you know, pay scheme or opportunities between the, the women and the men. Um, I think absolutely in an individual sport that if you don't speak up, who's going to do it for you? Um, and I also feel like, you know, if you're outside of the top 50, um, top 100 for sure, it's uh, not an easy life being a touring professional tennis player. So uh, I think it's good that there's a PTPA or at least some sort of union-like uh, body that is trying to push for player rights. And when you see the number of injuries on tour and you see how long the season goes and you see some of the you know decisions that get made, whether it be hosting a, a tour finals at the last minute or playing with a gajillion different tennis balls, tournament to tournament, um, clearly there's room for improvement out there. Yeah, and uh, certainly this generation taking a different tact and approach to, to some of these issues. We saw that signed letter by a number of the top 20 players in the women's game complaining of uh, various issues. And I, I, I can't speak probably to the WTA leadership when Hantukova was playing, but we've talked about it over the past probably year or, or so that we need to see improvement in that aspect, probably on, on the men's side as well. Um, but I, I don't want to speak like two, and I think she's in this realm as well she doesn't want to speak negatively of the sport uh but we also want to come together and grow the sport so different perspectives for sure right and she was also mentioning i mean she had a fair point that hey look a lot of professional athletes have it better than a lot of people out there who are struggling Mm -hmm. these days and and i totally get that but uh, i think no matter what your chosen career path is whether it be athletic or otherwise um it makes sense that you're going to want to you know try and push for for what you feel is fair out there so anyway that was a really interesting talking point and uh great to have her back on the podcast she used to be kind of a regular of ours back back in the day didn't work out in 2023 with her busy schedule but it was really great that she made the time and, and she mentioned afterwards that she'd be happy to come back on again this year so maybe we'll 
make up for last year with a double hit of Hantikova in 2024. Uh, I know I've got questions I still haven't asked her, maybe you as well. And one that always escapes me, and even though I mentioned it in the intro, was the fact that she's won all four uh, mixed doubles Grand Slams, which, not that she's the only person to ever do that, but there can't be that many who have done it. And just what an interesting career sort of footnote that she was able to achieve that. Yeah, I think her doubles career is really overlooked because obviously she did have uh, a ton of success in singles. And the tournament that I always think of when I think of Daniela Hantukova is that Australian Open run uh, where she pushed all the way to the semifinals. She had a lead against Anna Ivanovic, who, of course, won the slam. She was up a set and a break. And controversy from that match, which was so fascinating, Ivanovic's squeaky shoes, which were squeaking away throughout the entirety of that match, and in particular, hearing a couple of those squeaks before Hantukova was trying to serve, and it kind of um, threw her off her game mentally. Ivanovic played great to come back and then uh, won the title, but uh, that was just sort of an interesting story, and uh, also what I think of when I think of Daniela Hantukova is three-set matches, because she played so many three-set matches in her career, and was often victorious in them, because her fitness was so good. I always think about Indian Wells with her, um, Yeah, she won it once when she was quite young, and then I forget how many years later, but it was a little bit later in her career that she won it again. Those mm-hmm. are two really big tournaments, I mean, aside from the slams, that's as big as you can get, and for her to do that twice, that's obviously a very special place for her, and Something that we talked to her about at length in, in previous visits. But um, yeah, a great way to kickstart the episode. This is our Aussie Open uh, sort of preview episode, I guess. Although the tournament started a day earlier and it always catches me by surprise because I start seeing the score updates on Saturday for us here in the Eastern time zone. Yep. Sunday in Melbourne and you're like, oh shoot, yeah, this tournament's already going. All right, let's catch up and see what's going on. And there have already been some interesting results. Maybe we'll start uh, on the women's side. Yeah, look, on the women's side, and uh, if we start, I suppose, um, before we get to Canadian action, great start for Caroline Wozniacki, who, of course, she won her maiden slam here, and and she's back playing again. She took out the number 20 seed, Magda Lynette, who unfortunately had to retire due to injury in the second set. I think the story of day one on the women's side was the return of Amanda Anisimova, Um, uh, one of a few players, obviously, we've seen take the mental health break from this sport, step aside, put the racket down for a number of months. We knew how incredibly talented she was, former top 20 and a semifinalist at the French Open. For her to return and be in such great form to topple a top 15 player like Ludmilla Samsonova, what an impressive match that was. And and suddenly she looks like one of many names who could make a a little bit of a run. I was very happy to see that result for her not that we have any more familiarity with her situation than anyone who's listening right now, but just knowing what she shared about what she's gone through. And she had success at such a young age when she had that deep run at the French Open years ago already. She lost her father at a young age. That would have a big impact. And then you can just imagine the amount of crap that she has to put up with in terms of social media and people that were probably harassing her through through that um, method as well. So um, she took time. She took quite a bit of time. And that I think that's great. You don't want to just... Oh, I'm going to take some time for my mental health. And then a few weeks or a couple months only later, you're back at it before you've had a chance to sort of heal or make progress or, or whatever it is that you need. So I hope she's had the time that she needs. Big win for her to start. This is fantastic. And the draw opens up a little bit then in that section leading into potentially the fourth round against, you'd have to, I mean, it'd be a foregone conclusion. I think the Sabalink is going to be there waiting for whoever comes through. But this is a nice result, really, no matter what happens next, given her that confidence boost that, yeah, I can still hang with the best players in the world. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And as you mentioned, that's the bottom. That's the final quarter of the women's draw where Arena Sabalenka is the number two seed and trying to defend her title. And it was interesting for me watching the tennis this morning because we'll get to Novak Djokovic, who played a four-hour match in the first round. But Sabalenka, her match came on shortly after 11 o'clock, probably 11.30 p.m. uh, Melbourne time. And boy, oh boy, did she want to take care of business quickly. She was up 5 love in 16 minutes. It looked like she was going to double bagel this. I felt bad for the qualifier, uh, Ella Seidel from Germany, who was facing her because she was in tears at one point in the second set. You could tell she didn't think she was going to get a game. She got one right at the end, 5 love. She finally held for 5-1, got a huge applause from the crowd. But uh, Sabalenka was off the court here in 50 minutes, 6-love, six 6-1. Six and she just quickly is down to business 
and I don't see anybody touching her in this first week. I would cry too if I played Sablenka, but the difference <laughs> the difference is I would cry before stepping onto the court. Oh my god, of, the, the speed of, of her fear. ball. Yeah, the speed of her ball, it, it's unbelievable. And it, it's been recorded at prior slams that she's hitting harder than, than most of the men. Uh, I mean... I don't doubt it. I, I We've seen that forehand and that serve and just that uh, aggression up close here in Toronto at the National Bank Open. And when you're standing courtside when she is practicing, my goodness, I can't think of really anybody that I've seen hit the ball harder with that. And with like a, a hunger, you know, even in practice, oh, yeah. she just wants it. And so... Uh, yeah, the tears uh, don't surprise me. I feel for the qualifier too. But, you know, these qualifiers, you also got to look glass half full. And I'm sure, you know, her opponent, Sablanka's opponent, will come around later to realize, hey, what a great result. Some nice prize money. You make the first round of a slam, especially early in the year, that's setting you up to do so many more things for the rest of that calendar year in terms of training, in terms of physio, in terms of maybe who you can bring into your team to help you get to that next level. So, just allowing you to go to more tournaments than maybe otherwise you'd you'd financially be be able to. So uh, you got to feel real happy for anyone who makes it through qualifying, uh, including Canada's own Rebecca Marino, who had to qualify this year and um, and continue her streak of playing first round of the slams, which I think this is now her 10th in a row. And many of our listeners are quite familiar with what Rebecca's had to go through over the years. It's been great to see the consistency she's achieved um, over the last uh, four or five years. I think it's always really cool to see one of the veteran players manage to qualify as well, because you do have these stories of these youngsters, which in the case of Ella Seidel, who was facing Sabalenka, she's much younger and finally reaching her first slam. Marino, completely different story, now 33 years old. We know she took that long layoff, her mental health break about five years before coming back, played so exceptionally well, got herself back inside the top 100. I think 2023 was a bit of a down year for Marino, to be honest, but she did start it well by qualifying for Australia and for her to get back in this stage was unfortunate in the final round of qualifying. You're playing a fellow Canadian and Catherine Sebov uh, dealing with a bit of a wrist issue and she shut it down right away. So just two games in Marino uh, held and broke and Sebov stopped right there. I uh, didn't want to push it any further. So Marino into the first round main draw and, what a Tough test opponent. you'll get. What a test. <laughs> Number five seed, Jessica Pagula in the first round. You know what? I mean, Pagula is going to be the heavy favorite here, but I think this is a really fun matchup. Marino likes that kind of heavy, fast-paced game. She has that big serve and booming forehand. I think they're going to have an exciting match. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I'm looking forward to all the Canadian matchups, of course. I think they've all got pretty difficult draws. Uh, Leila Annie Fernandez, as we're recording the first Canadian to move on to the second round already, which is terrific. But uh, I think the draws are challenging for the Canadians. But then again, you know what? The draws are challenging for some seeded players. And I want to mention Iga Sviantek. This is not a walk in the park by any stretch as she has to open against Sophia Kennan, former Grand Slam champion and someone who played a heck of a lot better last year than we've seen in recent years. Her games seem to be back. Then she could have either Danielle Collins, who one of your favorite players, especially early in the season, who we know plays terrific down under, or Angelique Kerber, who, although she's been away from the game for a year and a half, still great pedigree, great resume. And then from there, you could have Marie Boskova in the third round. She's a terrific player, seated 31st, but I would rank her, in, in my mind, higher than that, to be honest. Alina Spitalina, maybe, in the fourth round, who... Uh, Daniela mentioned is one of her dark horse picks for the tournament. That whole section of the draw, there are no fluff matches for Iga to sink her teeth into. Yeah, is it safe to say, I mean, that top quarter, the toughest maybe uh, on paper for the women's side? Absolutely. As a rank is up there as well. Yeah, that's definitely the toughest draw from my perspective. Yeah, and I can kind of look at this in one of two ways. Iga is going to go kind of head in without an easy match with a a major challenge in her first round or even first couple of rounds if she does survive Sophia Kenyon. So maybe that elevates her focus that she's completely locked in from the start and that sets her up nicely as the tournament progresses or is she at serious risk of an upset? Uh, As you said, Kenyon started playing a lot better last year. She's not only an Australian Open champion from four years ago, she was a French Open finalist and WTA Player of the Year in 2020, which is incredible to think about. And Danielle Collins, I I mean, not only did she make the finals of the Australian Open a couple of years ago, she beat Iga in that semifinal 
to reach the final. And she she has that ability. She kind of reminds me of Sloane Stevens in, in a, a sense in that when they turn up the volume and play their best tennis, they can just take the racket out of your hands. And I've seen that from Collins before, and she always plays well on these courts. I favor Collins against Angie Kerber, and I would love to see an, an Iga Danielle showdown in the second round because it feels like the quality of a quarterfinal. And there are some feisty players in this round. There are some absolute fighters. I do not see, you know, a lot of two set, straight set, no. breadstick, bagel type sets, you know, for Iga, the way that these opponents stack up. Even you look at some players that have given her trouble before. And there's another one in there we haven't mentioned, Yelena Ostapenko, seated mm-hmm. 11th. If she could get through to the quarter, she's given Iga problems, uh, well, every time they played. so And she just um, won a title as well. So she's coming in and form. She won Adelaide this past week. Uh, I believe the seventh title of her career. So she's she's playing really, really good tennis. And she's, she beat some great players at that tournament too. She beat Garcia, Kasukina, Alexandrova. Uh, we know how incredibly dangerous she is. So there's really no safe safe round or safe spot in the top quarter of the draw. And it makes you wonder if he does get through all those difficult players and obstacles in front of her, how much will she have left in the semis against a Rabakina or the finals against the Sabalenka if those two have a bit of an easier path to get to the later stages of the draw. It's going to be super interesting. I love this women's draw. I feel like we say this at, at every slam, but I, I honestly feel like they just keep getting better and better. And the first round matchups, uh, I mean... For my money's worth, the women's side has all the best first-round clashes you could ask for. Uh, Elena Rybakina, who we, we've discussed, and of course, Hantukova discussed, she has a really tantalizing first round against Karolina Pliskova, someone who's been to Grand Slam finals before and can play incredible tennis. She's been world number two, so that's that's a great matchup. Naomi Osaka and her return, two-time champion, she'll take on the 16th-seeded Caroline Garcia. Who do you favor there? I don't, I don't know, man. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's such a coin flip, you know? I just, I just, I would love to see players' reactions when they see who they're playing in the draws. Like, to me, that would make for must-see TV or, mm-hmm. like, for a social team, you know, of a tournament to cover and put that content out there. That would be fantastic. Just film the players as they see who they're playing. Um, and, and my goodness, for Garcia, who's played top 10 tennis over the last couple of years again, um, this is uh, a tough one in, in both. What I'll say is, Osaka doesn't have a lot of match play under her belt. So that's true. Yeah. Right. Like I know it's early in the season and I guess you could say for many of them, well, they haven't had real competitive matches, not all of them in recent weeks um, or not many anyhow. Um, So I don't know, like I'm taking such a lame answer here, but like 50, 50, I have no idea, but it's definitely one that's going to get me up out of bed around five in the morning on Monday to, uh, to check it out. It's it's worth the the early rising for that one. Set the alarm. Uh, before we move on to the men's side, Layla Fernandez beating the qualifier. She's going to get American Alicia Parks in the second round. She's in a quarter with Coco Goff, the number four seed and U.S. Open champion. If Goff and Layla go about their business here in the first couple of matches, they could meet in the third round, which I feel like that is the matchup we missed at the French Open a couple of years ago could have been a potential semi. I would love to see that one. Would love to see it too. Uh, relatively the same age, Layla a little bit older, but uh, young talents for their respective countries. Um, we've talked before about how we enjoy the Canadian-American sort of matchups when we get them. Uh, but let's be honest, she's got to get through a tricky opponent first in Alicia Parks, who is mm-hmm. a heck of an emerging player on the women's tennis tour. Uh, huge serve, one of the biggest already uh, among the women. And someone who I'm keeping an eye on in 2024 as a, a breakout, potential breakout player here to to go, you know, to move ahead by leaps and bounds, I think. Yeah, she has all the tools to do it. Uh, she did get to top 50, uh, I believe, at, at one stage in her career, but hasn't really produce the consistent results you'd expect to see but obviously all the talent is there she hasn't been past the second round of a slam uh apart from Wimbledon and apart from here because she won her first match so we'll see if she has a chance obviously to go one step further against Layla uh definitely a match to to keep your eyes on if we uh shift course over to the men's side Novak Djokovic of course the world number one and the number one seed the 10-time champion in Australia and he's already off and running with a victory. Certainly not an easy one. World number 178, Dino Prismic, junior French Open champion, played his absolute tail off on center court. Four-hour opening match 
uh, Djokovic advancing in four sets, but they were tied a set apiece, and Prismic had a break at 3-2 in the third and really challenged Novak uh, to get this tournament going. Looked like a very soft draw uh, at first glance, I thought, for Djokovic, but uh, Prismic with an incredible showing. And I, I think, if anything, to have such a difficult opening round benefits Novak that now he's alert and ready for any challenge that awaits. I was going to say, does it matter to you if Novak gets pushed in an opening round match? I mean, to me, it doesn't really mean anything negative. In fact, as you just mentioned, I think it just wakes him up, which is not what you want to do in Australia. Um, last year, he only lost one set the entire tournament, and that was early on as well. Not first round, but I think it was second round, maybe third round. And then from there on, it was pretty much smooth sailing. Um, I think having a test like that is not necessarily a bad thing for him at all. Yeah, uh, no, that that's that's completely fair. And if I look at his draw, I, he could be maybe facing Alexi Popperin in the second round. I know a lot of people were excited at the prospect of facing Andy Murray in the third round. To me, there's still a lot of work to be done on Andy Murray's part to make that happen. Thomas Echeverry is the, the seeded player. Ben Shelton in the round of 16. If that match happens, I, I think that would be an electric showdown. We remember their encounter at the U.S. Open. It was pretty straightforward for Djokovic. And hang, he hung up the phone, of course, on, on Big Ben at the end of it. Uh, but Shelton did kind of push back in the third set. And I think he's improved since then. So that that's a match I would love to see personally. And Shelton's had a good result already this year, making the semifinals um, in... Um... Gosh, was that New Zealand or um, I think Auckland? Um, at any rate, he's had a semifinal result. He's gotten off to a good start. And he's a player that his ranking is already up there. And he's got so much room to improve on that this year because he went from the Aussie Open until, gosh, it was almost like the US Open without really going deep in, in very many tournaments at all. So mm -hmm. he's a player who I think I'd be shocked if he doesn't end up top 10 by the end of 2024. And yeah, the fact that there was a little bit of spiciness, a little bit of friction between him and Novak, um, I, I like that as long as it's um, like good natured friction. Does that make sense? Like not like mean spirited, but I don't yeah, mind a little bit of a rivalry developing. I, I would love I would love that. And, you know, Novak just spoke on this because, of course, he gave the diplomatic answer after it happened and said, I was I loved his celebration so much. So I, I had to copy it. He actually just recently said uh, a couple of days ago that he did it as a response to what he felt was unsportsmanlike conduct from Ben Shelton's side of the court and before the match. So he kind of admitted, like, I was very ticked off with the mannerisms and the behaviors of Shelton throughout the match, and it made me respond. So I I'm glad he owned that, I suppose. It, it certainly added a level of drama and friction, which I think already existed, into the equation if they do meet in the round of 16, which would make it especially blockbuster, I think especially for North American tennis fans. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for Canadian tennis fans hoping to have a Canadian singles player um, go deep. We should mention, by the way, in doubles, Gabby Dabrowski, Aaron Routliff, the fourth seeds in women's doubles and going to be a big favorite to go deep and challenge for that title. But in terms of singles play, we want to see it this year from Canadians. We want to see some Canadians get into the quarters, the semis. Hey, we take a final run again. I haven't seen that since uh, Leila Annie Fernandez in 2021 at the U.S. Open. Uh, we look at Felix, we look at Dennis, we look at Milos, the three Canadians in singles. I don't think any got dealt um, super favorable draws, but that's also by virtue of their rankings. Felix, the only one seated amongst the three. Milos still clearly building his game back and uh, a little bit more work to do. Dennis also is outside of the top 100 uh, because of the fact that he missed the last half of 2023. Do you have a pick amongst those three in terms of who might go furthest this year? Yeah, I, I think for the way he finished 2023 on a high note, getting that indoor title and, and defending in Basel that Felix isn't so far and away from having good form on the tennis court. It's really unfortunate that he had a setback, obviously, with the knee to start the season. I think it would have been helpful to get match play at the United Cup, especially in that team environment where it's not sort of necessarily would have been a one and done type of equation at a tournament. And unfortunately for Felix, he only got the one match in and a loss in Auckland in the first round to Daniel Altmaier, who, who does play good tennis. But I think against a still sort of rusty, out-of-form Dominic team, I, I like Felix's chances in that match. 
And because Denis Shapovalov, his road back has been longer. He's literally played one match since Wimbledon. I think the rust exists further for Shapovalov as opposed to Felix, who I think had a complete preseason training block. He remembers the good tennis he played in the fall. He plays well in Australia. I mean, we recall he had a match point against Danil Medvedev in the quarterfinal a couple of years ago. Uh, He was playing incredibly well then. And you look back at his 2022, and it's crazy how far he's fallen in some sense, but he is still a seeded player here. And I think he just has to pass that first test and get past Dominic team. And, and maybe there's an opportunity there to win a couple matches, get to the third round, do something positive. And as he told you just a few weeks ago um, on our podcast, uh, Felix, that is, he wants to prove he belongs with the big guys. And yeah. so it's got to start by winning matches like this. And looking at the draw, which I got to say is kind of challenging the way that it prints from the Aussie Open website. Not a big <laughs> fan of, of this mumbo jumbo here, but Looks to me, if I'm reading this correctly, right, that Chapo could get her, Hubert Hurtcatch in the second round, yes. which uh, is a huge test. Felix, potentially uh, Medvedev in uh, one of the early rounds as well. I believe in the third round. So yeah. you you like that path probably a little bit more, I, I would think. And then there's Milos. And then there's Milos, who gets, for sure, the toughest opening round uh, encounter against Alex Dermenauer, 10th uh, seeded. Australian going to have the crowd behind him playing great tennis into the top 10 for the first time in his career. Although from his perspective, a guy like Milos is going to be probably the last player he's going to want to see early. Someone who's going to make you, you know, put you under pressure right from the get go bombs on the first serve. Um, Raonic just played the Kuyan classic where he beat Francis TFO again. Uh, yeah. They played obviously this summer in a great first round match here in Toronto uh, Milos got him again in straight sets, although it's an exhibition format, still a good win. Uh, this is the kind of player that, uh, I mean, I think going into this matchup, the pressure is clearly on the Australian shoulders. 100%. Uh, as you said, that's a brutal draw for Alex Timmenauer, who's playing basically the best tennis of his life right now. Just recorded a win over the world number one, beating Djokovic in straight sets. Was unbelievable at the United Cup, playing for Australia reaching a Masters 1000 final in Toronto last summer, as we saw up close how well he was playing. He moves exceptionally around the court. Sometimes, though, there's no answer for Missile Raonic's serve. And he's been to the quarterfinals or better five times in Melbourne. So I, I just think with that one weapon harnessed, if it's clicking, if the shoulder is feeling good, which by all indications, Milos is feeling good. Uh, I, I gather he's had the appropriate amount of rest, any rehab necessary, that if he's in good shape here, he's going to be a problem for Alex Dimenauer. Uh Dimenauer is going to have to work, especially in return games. And when someone, if, if Roundage is serving to his peak abilities, you're constantly under pressure at all times that you can't have a little flinch in a tie break or in your service games. He's going to have to be extremely focused throughout. Obviously, Dimenauer is the favorite in this match, but I think it's uh, closer that, than one would uh, one would believe on paper, maybe. Yeah, and Dimenauer's game is also based on his ability to hustle and get into long points and hang in there. You're not going to get long points with Milos. Like, that's just no. not how the Canadian is going to play. And we had him on the podcast as well, just uh, just before the new year. And he was talking about how he's feeling good, how he wants to play a fuller season this year, how he's got a lot of goals, wants to get his ranking up to qualify for the Paris Olympics. I spoke with his physiotherapist uh, on the weekend as well. He says all signs are looking good right now too. So um, this will be a, a good one to watch as well. And although we talked about how many fantastic women's first round matches there are, this one to me is is definitely one of the top ones on the uh, men's side. Yeah, it's it's definitely a standout and just a great back uh, opportunity to have Milos back in Australia. Um, one of his best slams, the second best slam, obviously, of his career, uh, just behind Wimbledon, where, of course, he made that final in 2016. Look, Novak is the favorite. If we talk about probably what I would call the other three to me who can really realistically win this tournament, you have Yannick Sinner, you have Carlos Alcaraz, you have Daniil Medvedev. My question, I suppose, is which of those three do you think has the best shot to, to win it all? I mean, I would say none of them right now because Novak to me none? Is, is just I, I just <laughs> oh. think Novak is just gonna oh my God. just gonna take it. You know, I just wow. think he is still in like full on goat mode. But 
but if something happens to Novak or who's the most likely after Novak to get there, I mean, uh, Medvedev has more experience. Alcaraz kind of cooled off more in the later stages of last year. And I feel Sinner was the one who was really playing better tennis as the year went on. Now we've had a bit of a break. So do they come out of the gate kind of picking up from there? Probably not. Who's to say what's going to happen? But I guess just based on how the three closed out last season, I think Sinner seems to me like he's the most ready to now take his own game to another level, uh, maybe a little bit faster than the other two. And look, Sinner is a potential semifinal matchup for Djokovic. And you have to think there is a carryover of confidence that he did beat him two times uh, right at the tail end of the season. Once in round robin play at the Nito ATP finals, of course, ultimately that win didn't matter because Djokovic got him back handily in the final. But that massive Davis Cup victory where he turned aside three match points. Now, this is best of three. And we always say best of five is kind of that different animal where we favor Djokovic that much more. But I sort of wonder if that semifinal does happen, if Sinner is firing on all cylinders, say if Djokovic somehow survives Sinner in a a long five-set match, does he suddenly look a little weary having to face a final against a fresher Alcaraz or an informed Medvedev? That is my question, I suppose. Fair fair enough. And uh, just, just remind me for a second, Djokovic has, what, 24 slams right now? 24 and if we remember and, Ra- and Rafa has how many does Rafa have 22 and if you look at Margaret Court I, I mean I don't necessarily count some of her slams because they were one in an era where she had to face lesser competition but she technically has 24 so if you want to add more history to right. the record books here he can surpass both men and women for most uh singles grand slams all time with a victory here I was just thinking between him and Rafa you know you, you want to try I would love to see that kind of close and stay close although it seems unlikely perhaps that it's going to happen but if Novak wins this one has 25 to Rafa's 22 I mean I think that's game over for Rafa's chances right to probably catch him. oh 100 <laughs> percent but if he doesn't win this one and, and Rafa can keep that to just two French Open coming hopefully he's back and healthy could potentially bring it to one I mean I would like that conversation to continue for a little while longer um but who knows if that's a realistic expectation I guess we don't really know what's going to happen next with Nadal, unfortunately. No, we have to see on his health, though. I think he is eager to continue playing shortly after the Australian Open. We'll we'll see how this draw unfolds. A couple other matchups that did take place. Andre Rublev needed a fifth set tiebreak to defeat Brazilian Thiago Seaboth Wild. I have to say, I I thought this was going to be fairly straightforward. Rublev was in form. He actually won a tournament to open his season in Hong Kong. Rublev has been to nine Grand Slam quarterfinals in his career, which is a staggering number. I actually made a projection. I I think I had eight picks or eight or ten picks to begin the year that I tweeted out. And I said, Rublev makes a Grand Slam semifinal this season. That may have been a little. I mean, three of his nine quarterfinals were last year. Right. So he's showing more consistency. Yes. And then you look at the players that he's lost to in those quarterfinals, three times Medvedev. Two mm-hmm. times Djokovic, Nadal once, and then TFO and Chilich, who had both beaten him at previous slams and earlier rounds. So maybe they were in his head a little bit, but it's not like he's losing to um, to chumps out there either, right? But at a certain point with his talent and what he's doing in lower level tournaments, I don't mean lower level, but not the slams. Yes. You would expect that this guy should have a semifinal or 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 better uh, showing at a slam. Maybe this year will be it. But if you're a Rublev fan, uh, you know, your confidence is not getting any higher after he nearly blew a two set to love lead in his opening round. No, we'll see if he comes through stronger for it or or not. Uh, another player who had a, a lot of difficulty, which I was surprised, was uh, Taylor Fritz needing five sets uh, to defeat uh, young Argentinian Facundo Diaz Acosta, who I will ready, readily admit I hadn't really heard of him, nor had I ever seen him play. So I thought that would be a comfortable straight sets win. Ritz was down two sets to one in this match before coming back and, and winning. That's another player to me, like he's been top 10 in the world and we haven't seen like, of course he won Indian Wells the other year, beating Rafa in the final. We haven't seen the big breakthrough on a Grand Slam stage yet from him either. But he's had a breakthrough with the Netflix show Breakpoint and one of those yeah. players that's focused there, right? And I don't know, sometimes you also kind of wonder, does the attention that you're receiving in other avenues, you know, off the court, maybe add up a little bit and make it more difficult to focus on just going out there and, and being the consistent player that you need to be? And 
maybe we'll save the the Netflix show for next week or after the Aussie sure. Open. I need a couple of weeks probably to watch those first uh, foray of, of episodes. Looking forward to it. Um, but for right now, Aussie Open, Grand Slam Tennis, here we go. The next couple of weeks, we'll have our mid-tournament report um, next week for you. And so far to start the year, great guests. Abigail Johnson last week, Daniela Hantikova this week. We're going to keep that going, so uh, stick with us. There's a lot more uh, great episodes of this podcast to come in 2024. Absolutely. Guys, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. 